And we've known your pastor for uh, over 10 years, and I consider your pastor a brother to me. And I feel so close, and God has given you the best right here at Fellowship. And join with me in thanking the Lord for your pastor. Well, I'm going to give a talk, and uh, many of you are in the first service. Show your hands if you were in the first service so I get an idea. And I'm going to quickly go past the beginning so that I'm going to get to the, there's three parts to my message. And so I got past two of them. I'm going to repeat a little bit, but then I'm going to get to the third part. And we're going to talk about Islam and contrasting it to Jesus. And we're going to begin to see what's happening in the world. Uh, People say, why is it important to know? Well, I think God doesn't bless ignorance. I think he wants us to know what's going on. Uh, And I think that when we do know, we can see that it's a call to repentance, that God wants us to repent and draw close to him. And how much more at the beginning of a new year to say we're going to draw close to the Lord and even get back into reading the Bible and uh, start a, a practice of reading through the Bible at once a year. Well, this is a book and a DVD that I did, uh, and now the majority of Muslims are nonviolent, but some are violent, and those are the ones we're concerned about, because nine of the ten worst countries persecuting Christians are Muslim. We see San Bernardino killings and Paris attacks and Boston bombings. It's headed our way. Fort Hood killings, beheadings in Oklahoma, street signs in, in Arabic in Michigan, and now we got sanctuary cities, and some of the largest ones are right here in Florida and Port Charlotte, and they're bringing tens of thousands of Muslims into America with no background checks. And so there's a concern, are we bringing terrorists over here? And um, uh, now majority of them are happy to live, but there are some that don't like our form of government and they don't like democracy. And um, they have been uh, over the years wanting to put into place Sharia law and their practices of uh, killings and beheadings and stonings to death. This is what goes on. Those are villages in Nigeria where they burn the whole Christian village. And um, uh, here's a girl who was stoned to death for participating in a beauty pageant, saying that she violated the laws of Sharia. Uh, here, the girl in the middle there was raped by her 40-year-old uncle. And when the local Muslim imam found out about it, she was ordered to be whipped 101 times. And, and so in Islam... If the woman is raped, it's her fault for allowing herself to be used as a tool of Satan to tempt the man. So she has to wear the burqas to look unattractive on purpose. And so what it, we have in America, a legal system that says you punish the criminal. You don't punish the victim. Well, it's different. In Sharia law, they punish the victim. The woman who is raped also gets whipped. And so it's incompatible with our form of government. We have an Eighth Amendment that says there shall be no cruel and unusual punishment. In Islam, they say to cut off the hand of a thief. Most people would think that's cruel and unusual. Uh, Kenya mall killings. and uh, These are churches that have existed for centuries that are being destroyed while we're over here. And this is happening right now. There are whole areas of Syria where there had been Christianity for nearly 2,000 years. And it's finally being wiped out. And so... uh, We ask ourselves, why? Why do some Muslims, not all, but why do some of them do this? Uh, And so when they do this violence, we have politicians saying, well, those ones that did it, they don't represent true Islam. And yet the ones that are doing the killing are saying Allahu Akbar, and they think they do represent true Islam. Who can tell us what true Islam is? One person, Muhammad. 
Muhammad was the best Muslim that ever lived. And so his life is called the Sunnah, which means the way or the example. And so if we put Muhammad's life under a microscope and we see how it went through three stages from being a religious leader to a political leader to a military leader, since Muhammad is the best Muslim, there's going to be this, this magnetic pull for Muslims that want to be better Muslims to be like him, religiously, politically, and militarily. So I'm going to quickly go through just one of the stories that I did this morning. And um, so Muhammad started his faith, and he was a religious leader in the pagan city of Mecca for 12 years, and he only made 70 converts. And very few are joining him, and so he gets confrontational and begins to insult these pagans and tell them that they're going to burn in hell. Well, they decide they don't like him, and they want to chase him out of town. And uh, they can't because he has a rich uncle. In 619 A.D., his uncle dies. Finally, in 622 A.D., the people of Mecca chase Muhammad out of town. And so he is a Muslim refugee. He has no place to go. And so there's a Jewish city to the north called Medina. And they're nice. They let Muhammad in as a Muslim immigrant. And he goes into the minority neighborhoods, and he begins to organize a following. We're familiar with the term of organizing in the community. He gets a following, goes back to the Jewish leaders of Medina, and pressures them to accommodate him and his followers politically. Right? You know, change your laws so you don't offend us. And so they make a treaty. And now Muhammad is a political leader in addition to being a religious leader. And then something happens. Muhammad's followers in Mecca get chased out of town. They are Muslim refugees. They go to Medina as Muslim immigrants. And Muhammad allows his followers to rob the caravans headed to Mecca in retaliation for the Meccans chasing them out of town. And so we see the caravan route there. And as it goes through Medina, Muhammad and his men would rob them. He got a whole chapter of the Quran on how to distribute booty from robbing caravans. He got a fifth of the booty. So where Jesus said, if they take your coat, give them your shirt... His attitude was, if they take your house, you retaliate, take their caravan. So the Meccans send a 1,000 soldiers to protect their caravan, and Muhammad, with 300, defeats a 1,000 at the Battle of Badra. And so this begins Muhammad's military career, and he fights in 66 battles and raids in the next eight years before he dies. And since he's the best Muslim, Muslims that want to follow in his example, they want to follow him religiously, politically, and militarily. So our effort in the West to split the religious side of Islam away from the political military side is we're trying to split Muhammad. Who are we to split their prophet? He was all three. And so a mosque is a religious building, a political building, and a military building. Bowing to Mecca is a religious bowing, a political bowing, and a military pledging of allegiance to another capital. And so uh, in the Quran, there's two sets of verses based on the two cities Muhammad lived in. In Mecca, Muhammad was a religious leader. In Medina, Muhammad's a political military leader. So the verses he gets in Mecca are relatively more peaceful because they're just religious. The verses he gets in Medina are more violent. And the later verses supersede the earlier verses. By way of comparison, in the Bible, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's some violence. Moses and Joshua wiping out tribes. In the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles never killed anyone. So what do we say? WWJD, what would Jesus do? The later, more peaceful example is the one we're going to strive to imitate. It's the same way in Islam, only in reverse. Their peaceful verses came first when he was in Mecca, and they're superseded by the violent verses he gets in Medina. And um, 
So in 627 A.D., the Meccans sent 10,000 soldiers to Medina to stop Muhammad and his men from robbing the caravans. Muhammad, turns out he's a brilliant military leader, primarily because he's unconventional. And so he digs potholes and trenches all around the city of Medina, which renders the superior cavalry of the Meccans useless, and sort of like IEDs and roadside bombs. And, and so it throws off the battle strategy. Muhammad goes to some of these pagan tribes at night, and he bribes them, and they slip away. He goes to some of the other pagan tribes at night, and he threatens them, and they slip away. Sort of like the Chicago politics, the bribe or the bullet, the silver or the lead, you know, the positive and negative. And um, finally, uh, it gets freezing cold for a week, and the rest of the Meccans lose heart and decide to retreat. And it leaves a power vacuum, very similar to last year when our president declared the war in Iraq and Afghanistan over and he brought all of our troops home, and it left the power vacuum. What happened? Did they get more peaceful? No, they got more violent. And so in Muhammad's case, when the Meccans retreated, he was emboldened that his enemies were cowards and unable to subdue him. And so that's when he went uh, back into the Jewish neighborhoods, and he began to drive out the Jews. And so within five years of Muhammad coming into the Jewish city of Medina, there's not a Jew left in the city of Medina. They were chased out, killed, or enslaved. And so within five years of Muhammad's death, every pre-existing culture in Arabia was wiped out. And so we see it's a three-step process, uh, like Caesar's three steps, vini, vidi, vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. Muhammad's three steps was immigrate, increase, eliminate. Immigrate into the host victim country, so to speak, as a religious refugee. Then increase the number of your followers amongst the disadvantaged minorities. And then eliminate the previous culture, neighborhood by neighborhood, until you finally take over. And so there's a 1,400-year track record of watching this happen. And there's three springs. We hear the term Arab Spring. There's been three springs in Islam. The first was the Arab-Persian Spring from 622 to 1071. The second is a Turkish Spring from 1071 to 1923, uh, after the World War I. And then the third Arab Spring started in 1928. And we're going to quickly go through the first two so I can get to the third. Um, Islam uses something called psychological projection. It's blame shifting. And it's uh, where maybe a rude person is always accusing everybody else of being rude. Right? And so in Islam, in, and I ran for Congress three times, and I figured um, one of the tactics that's often used in politics is you accuse your opponent of what you're guilty of. Right? So if you're doing you know, tax evasion, you accuse your opponent on it, and he's got to say, no, I know. You know, if you're a racist, you accuse the other one of being a racist, and then he's got to try to, to show, no, I'm not. Meanwhile, everybody takes their eyes off of you. And so what it is is you accuse uh, the other person of being intolerant when really you're intolerant. And we see the most intolerant force on the planet is, uh, well, 240 million people have been killed in Islamic Jihad. That's more than communism. That's more than, you know, the, the, the Mao Zedong. And so you blame the person you're going to attack as the, the ones who instigated. So if you offended me, therefore I'm justified in attacking you. Does that make sense? And so um, Muslims would accuse people of offending them, and then they would use that as an excuse to fight. And they got the stirrup which came from Mongolia to China to Persia, and then to the Muslim world, and then the scimitar sword, which came from Damascus. So this was cutting-edge technology. Uh, the Europeans were still fighting on foot with heavy metal swords that took two hands. So the Muslims were on horseback 
with their Arabian horses and their stirrups and their scimitar swords, which are very light, like a razor blade. And at a full gallop, they literally could slice them one in half. And so they were the, had this cutting-edge technology. This, by the way, is the U.S. Supreme Court chamber in Washington, D.C. And it has a marble frieze. This is uh, you know, carvings around the, the wall in the Supreme Court chamber of lawgivers throughout history. It does have Moses and his ten Hebrew commandments, but it has Muhammad up there with his Arabic Quran and his scimitar sword. And this is Muhammad's sword. It still exists in a palace in Istanbul, Turkey. And so we see this. Uh, his main general was Khalid ibn al-Walid, who was undefeated in over 100 battles. And um, then the Muslims conquered Syria. Syria was the first country that was completely Christian, evangelized by the Apostle Paul. Antioch, Syria is where the name Christian was first used. And uh, do you know there's more ancient Christian writing in the Syrian language of Syriac than any other language other than Greek and Latin? If you want to read ancient Christian stuff, you're going to read Greek, Latin, and Syriac. And these Syrian Christians evangelized east like the Greeks did west. So they evangelized into India, Mongolia, even China during the Tang Dynasty in the 600s had a thriving Syrian Christian community. But it was largely wiped out by a Muslim leader named Tamerlane. And... uh, And so the Muslims conquered Yemen, which used to be a Jewish kingdom. And then Jerusalem had been a Byzantine Christian city since Constantine. And then they conquered into Egypt. Egypt was evangelized by Mark. They wrote the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it was Christian for six centuries until Amir ibn Alas conquered it. And there used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa in the 7th century. Boom, all conquered by the Umayyad Muslims. This happened just within 23 years of Muhammad's death. They're setting up their ISIS, their Islamic State, their caliphate. So the supreme leader after Muhammad died was called the Caliph. And the area he controls is the Caliphate. And so there's been this push to reestablish the caliphate and they are the isis the islamic state now when the muslims conquered all the way into spain just within 23 years of muhammad's death it was a heart attack to the roman economy and so it'd, it'd be like all the trade on the mediterranean was cut off it would be like if china held back their ships for three months all of our walmart shelves would be empty And our retail economy would have a heart attack. That's what happened to Rome. Well, one of the things held back was the ships of papyrus. These were reeds that grew along the Nile Delta that they dried out and used for paper. So suddenly there was a paper shortage in Europe. They wrote fewer books. And this is the beginning of something called the Dark Ages. So Islam is largely responsible for Europe entering the Dark Ages. And so they conquered in just 100 years from the Persian Gulf to the Atlantic Ocean. And then in the year 711, they invade Spain. Spaniards are still fighting on foot with heavy metal swords. Muslims are on their Arabian horses, stirrups, scimitar swords. In 10 years, they conquer all of Spain, carry away untold thousands into slavery. Uh, They cross the Pyrenees Mountains. They're conquering southern France. Uh, You read the story of the Battle of Bordeaux. In one pass, the Muslim cavalry annihilates the Frankish army. Right? So they're riding on their horses, and the Franks are on foot. And one pass, they're all dead. They turn on for a second, go at them. They're unstoppable. So Pope Gregory puts out a plea that anybody that could fight should join Charles Martel. He was the grandfather of Charlemagne. Charles Martel gets 30,000 volunteers. They're all on foot, puts them on top of a hill in a square. So the Muslims are charging uphill. It looks like just a line, and they're just going to charge through. Well, they, they charge into the square, 30,000 guys packed together, and they get stuck. Meanwhile, Charles Martel arranged for some of his men to sneak into the Muslim camp and free the captives because they fought for religion, but they also fought for plunder. 
Muhammad said you could have four wives plus as many extra women as your right hand possesses. They just don't have the status of a wife. And, um, and then if you die in battle, you get 72 virgins in the next life. And so this was a strong motivation for men to want to join into jihad. Of course, the sultan got a fifth. Many sultans had a thousand wives. But as the uh, Charles Martel's fighting, he sends some spies into the camp to free these captives. And the Muslim warriors are fighting, and they're seeing their captives leave. And so they leave the fight to go back and reclaim their, their captives. And so... Um, the commander of the Muslims tries to rally them back to the fight. He gets distracted and killed. And now the Muslims cannot decide who their next commander is going to be until they pick up and go back to Spain. That was the Battle of Tours in 732 A.D., exactly 100 years after the death of Muhammad in 632 A.D. They go from Arabia to Paris in a military campaign setting up their ISIS, their Islamic State, their caliphate. And so Charles Martel gets every horse he can find, and he learns how to make a stirrup. And five years later, he wins his first battle. And it takes 700 years of battles to drive the Muslims out of Spain. And so uh, they, um, some definitions. The word Islam means submission to the will of Allah. A Muslim is one who has submitted to the will of Allah. And Islam believes there will be world peace when the whole world submits to the will of Allah. So Islam is a religion of peace. It's just their definition of the word peace is different than our definition. Our definition of peace is different groups getting along. Their definition of peace is when the whole world submits to the will of Allah. So to them, world peace means world Islam. So when they say it's a religion of peace, that's their goal. They want to make the whole world submit to the will of Allah. And so Abraham Lincoln said, we all declare for liberty, but in using the same word, we do not all mean the same thing. We all want peace, but we don't mean the same thing that they mean. And uh, now Islam divides the world into two halves, the half that has submitted and the half that's in the process of submitting. And the half that's in the process of submitting is called the house of war. It's supposed to be at war. So they see the world as Muslim and going to be Muslim. Now, what about the moderate Muslim, the nonviolent Muslim? They think the world is going to submit to Allah later, maybe in the distant future, maybe at the end of the world. Maybe it's even figurative. And since it's so far off, they just want to live their lives, have their family. That's fine. That type of Muslim has no problem living in a free democratic society and having you as a coffer infidel as a neighbor. The fundamental Muslim, on the other hand, they think the world is supposed to submit to Allah. Now they're really excited and they want to help make it happen. Now, the dilemma for us is the nicer we show ourselves and bend over backwards to be really, really tolerant, the more the moderate Muslim begins to rethink and says, wait a second, this has never, ever happened before, that we can immigrate into a country like America and they pay us $2,500 a month and give us free housing and free medical care and free education and everything free. This has never happened before. Maybe the world is, in fact, submitting to Allah now rather than later. And so they gravitate from the future peaceful moderate camp into the fundamental now camp, which is the violent camp. So all of our efforts to show ourselves really nice is actually creating more violence. Sort of like a football game. I know there's some big games coming up. And imagine the other team's playing tough. So we get in the huddle and we tell ourselves, tell you what, let's let them get a first down. They'll get it out of their system and then they'll be nice and let us get a first down. That doesn't work, so we get in the huddle. We say, tell you what, let, let's let them get a touchdown. Then certainly they'll be nice and let us get a touchdown. Well, that doesn't work, so we get in the huddle again. Let's let them score again and again. We can't understand the more yardage we give, give up, instead of them giving us a turn, they're getting more excited, and they're packing out the stadium, and they're on their feet cheering. 
our foreign policy has been giving in, giving in, and giving in. And this is causing the Muslim world to get more and more excited. They really think they're this close to having the whole world submit to Allah. And so um, another word to define is the word innocent. Uh, when Muslims do killing, politicians say, well, those killers, they don't represent true Islam. Because Islam says it's wrong to kill the innocent. Well, let's define the word innocent. Innocent is a follower of the way of Allah. And so if you are not a follower of the way of Allah, you are guilty. And it says, Allah loveth not those who reject the faith. Be ruthless to the infidel. Make war on the infidel. Fight those who believe not in Allah. Kill the disbeliever. So when they say it's wrong to kill the innocent, it's code for it's wrong to kill Muslims. Now, in all due respect, the fundamental violent Muslims view the non-violent Muslims as, ha- as having left the way of Allah. And so the violent ones are just as happy to kill the non-violent ones as they are to kill us. Right? And so, um, anyway, so they call that the Ridda laws, R-I-D-D-A, the apostasy laws. And it goes back to Muhammad. And uh, if you leave Islam, they want to kill you. So here's a current e- Egyptian imam. He says, if they had gotten rid of the apostasy punishment, Islam would, would not exist today. Islam would have ended since the death of the prophet, peace be upon him. So in other words, 90% plus Muslims stay in Islam because they're afraid someone will kill them. Uh, just about a month ago, I spoke at uh, a big church, First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. Right, big church, and then met a guy who has a ministry there. His name's Elijah Abraham, and he has the Oasis, Living Oasis ministry. So he's a Muslim from Iraq that came to England and then came to America, and then he got saved. He says that he... Uh, just decided uh, that he would pray and didn't feel like Allah was hearing his prayer. So he shows up at a church, and uh, he says that the, um, the pastor says, open the Bible uh, to the book of John. And he turns to the guy next to, him, next to him, and he says, who's John? And he goes, oh, he was an apostle. He goes, what's an apostle? He goes, what's a disciple? He goes, what's a disciple? He goes, uh, sort of a student follower of Jesus. Okay, I got it. And, then, and so the guy opens it up, you know, and he didn't know anything. And he ended up getting saved, and he became a Christian. And so now he starts. To, he went to Bible school and became. And so now he has a ministry to Muslims. And he says, if you remove the riddle laws, ninety percent of Muslims would leave overnight. In other words, if you took it away, that anybody, your own family, could kill you if you leave Islam. So you're constantly looking over your shoulder and under this fear. And so when a Muslim gets saved, you know they got a lot of courage. And um, anyway. So, uh, so it takes 700 years to drive the Muslims out of Spain. And one of the famous warriors was um, El Cid, Rodrigo Diaz. And Charlton Heston, Sophia Loren, were in a movie. And I met Charlton Heston years ago. I ran for Congress. He endorsed me. Uh, he was the head of the NRA at the time. And um, anyway, so here's Charlton. <coughs> here's El Cid. He's charging. He's fighting the Muslims out of Spain. And uh, he's wounded. And they look at him and they say, yeah, you're going to die. And he says, well, I'm going to die anyway, so put me back on the horse with a board up my back. Tie me on really tight. They open the barn doors and slap the horse. He goes off riding. His men jump on their horses. They ride and they win the battle. And after the battle, they're all celebrating. And they go, where's El Cid? They see him over there on his horse sort of, you know, drooped over. It's one of those romantic chick flicks. You know, you have to snuggle up on the couch. And um, So they drive the Muslims out of Spain. But while they were in Spain, they enslaved tens of thousands, ultimately over a million Europeans. And so there were whole Catholic orders in Europe through the Middle Ages called the Trinitarians. And the head of the order was called the Ransomer. And they would have a church service and collect donations to go ransom back your Christian friend that was captured by the Muslims. And um, 
So there was whole coast of Italy where there was not a woman at childbearing age for generations because the Muslims' pirates would come up and round them up like Boko Haram and take them to Morocco. And they even captured an entire Irish village in 1635, the stolen village of Baltimore, Ireland. They just came up with their pirate ships, and the Muslims loaded them up, took them to Morocco. And uh, so in 846 A.D., they invaded Rome, and they trashed the Basilica of St. Peter's and trashed the grave of St. Peter and St. Paul. And then they enslaved an estimated 240 million Africans. Muhammad was a white Arab. A uh, guy was on his donkey going to early morning prayer, and he rubs up against the prophet. He says, I saw the whiteness of the prophet's thigh. And uh, the Muslims enslaved these Africans. And uh, uh, even uh, David Livingston writes about uh, in 1800s, he's a missionary in the Congo, and he would stumble across a path of Africans tied together, being marched 500 miles to the coast to be sold into Muslim slavery. And if they walked too slow, they would just shoot him or stab him. And he said, you could tell where the vultures are circling. That's where the Muslim slave trails were. So they had slavery for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it still goes on today. And, uh, well, all that happened very quickly. So they conquered from Arabia across North Africa and into Spain. And then they decided they're going to attack Constantinople. It was where the capital of Europe was. So Constantine moved the capital of Rome from Rome, Italy, to where the Black Sea empties into the Mediterranean. It's called Constantinople. And the Muslims attack five times, but they're turned back because the Europeans have Greek fire. This is where they take oil and sawdust, mix it in these brass containers, spray it out of hot oil cannons, sort of like napalm. And uh, you ever hold the match in front of a can of hairspray? You never tried that at home. Pastor, did you ever try that? <laughs> and uh, so... People say, well, Bill, uh, that, by the way, that was all the first Arab Spring. It went from the Persian Gulf to the Atlantic Ocean, and it happened very quickly, just within 100 years. And so um, people say, well, Bill, uh, you just talked about Muslims killing people. Didn't Christians kill people too? What about the Crusades? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. That's the second spring, the Turkish Spring. And so a group they call the Turks convert to Islam in two waves, the Seljuk Turks and the Ottoman Turks, and they invade into what is today Turkey. All seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were wiped out by the Muslim Turks. These New Testament letters to the city of Ephesus and Galatia and Colossae, all those cities were wiped out by the Muslim Turks. And so the Christians are begging the West for help. And the West finally sends help. It's called the Crusades. And... Um, Anyway, so there's 14 centuries of Muslim crusades, only two centuries of the European crusades. And uh, one of the most famous Greek saints was St. Nicholas. I wrote a book about him. He lived in the Asia Minor in a city called Myra, which was near Nicaea in Ephesus. And uh, he lived during Roman times and gave to the poor. And he did it anonymously because he wanted the glory to go to God. And he'd, you know, slip money in their window. And sometimes it would land in a shoe or a stocking that was drying by the fireplace. And so these Greeks would have these traditions on their St. Nicholas. Well, anyway, um, when the Muslims invaded, they would trash the graves of the saints. And so they moved the, the grave of St. Nicholas all the way over to Bari, Italy. B-A-R-I, Bari, Italy. And there was a pope who dedicated the church. His name was Urban II. He's the same pope, Urban II that went to the Consul of Claremont and begged the Europeans to send help to leave the 99, go after the one, and they sent help. It was called the First Crusade. So the same Urban II who uh, had the St. Nicholas traditions be introduced into Western Europe is the same Pope Urban II that asked Western Europe to send help to these Christians that were being killed in uh, the Middle East. Um, now, it's interesting, and uh, since I did the book on 
the Christmas traditions. I threw this in. Uh, you know how Catholics will say St. Peter's at the gates of heaven? Greeks have a take on the book of Revelation where it says that Jesus will return at the end of the world to judge the living and the dead riding a white horse. And the saints will come back with him riding white horses. And St. Nicholas is a saint, so certainly he'll be one of those riding a white horse. He just gets to come back once a year for a little mini judgment, a little checkup on the kids, make sure they're not, you know, naughty and nice. And um, in Norway, they didn't have horses, so they have them coming back on a reindeer. And the saints come from where? Heaven, the celestial city that turns into the North Pole. And the Lamb's Book of Life turns into the, you know, the book of the naughty and the nice. And the angels turn into the elves. And, but anyway, in Holland, their traditions are that St. Nicholas comes once a year riding a white horse, dressed as a bishop. And he has with him a little Muslim helper named Zwarte Piet. And they tell the kids, if you're good, St. Nicholas will give you presents. If you're naughty, Zwarte Pete will put you in a gunny sack and take you back to Spain and sell you into Muslim slavery. Because the Muslims had Spain for 700 years. So um, here's one of these Dutch pictures. Could you imagine opening it up and reading it to a little kid before Christmas? And the night before Christmas comes Zwarte Pete and he shoves you in a bag. Ah! I love this picture. Look at the little kid begging in there. And here's the Varte. Pete's got another little one. And the little kid, please don't take our little brother. And the parents are like, oh, too bad. Well, I guess we'll, you know, we'll, we'll miss you. Uh, anyway, so here is um, Urban II. He's begging to send help. And they do send help to the Byzantine emperors called the First Crusade. And there's nine major crusades. And um, Richard the Lionheart led the third crusade, left his brother King John in charge of England. Remember the Nottingham and the Sherwood Forest? And who? The Robin Hood story, right. Uh, Richard, after the crusade, goes back to England, rules for five years. And after he dies, King John takes over again. And he's taxing the people so much that 25 barons surround King John on the fields of Runnymede in 1215 A.D. and force him to sign the... Magna Carta, the first document limiting the arbitrary power of a king, became the basis for English common law. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> on and on. So the Crusades end, and the Muslims have their Islamic state, their caliphate, and it controls all of Spain, all of North Africa, the Zanzibar coast, uh, Madagascar, over to Indonesia, and northern India, and into eastern Europe. This was their, their ISIS, their Islamic state. And then they have a Muslim leader named Tamerlane. He kills 17 million people, leaves pyramids of skulls, and tells his men to come back with a, he was called the Sword of Islam, and tells his men to come back with a head in every hand. And uh, anyway, so there, so, uh, so he was a, he had a Koran so big they had to carry it around in a wheelbarrow. And so now the Muslims have crossed the Bosporus where the Black Sea empties into the Mediterranean. And that little purple is what's left of the Byzantine Empire. And uh, so there's the Ottoman Empire. And what's this green and brown? Those are Euro Venetian and Genoan merchants who are selling military goods to the Muslims. That's right. People in the West selling out the West to the Muslims for money. Sort of like in 1938, Standard Oil Company of California discovered oil in Saudi Arabia. Prior to that, the majority of oil came from Oklahoma. But once they discovered it... The West bought so much oil from Saudi Arabia, made it go from the poorest Muslim country to the richest Muslim country. And so the rest of the Muslim world said, why be like America to be blessed? Let's be like Saudi Arabia. So we sort of flipped the magnetic switch to draw the Muslim world to the most violent, backward Muslim country of Saudi Arabia, where they still do the chopping off of the arms and legs. Well, once Constantinople falls, and the year is around 1450, 1453, 
um, it cuts off the land trade routes to get to India and China. And so that's when uh, Christopher Columbus looks for a sea route. And so he set sail in 1492. So Columbus would have never set sail in 1492 to look for a sea route to India and China had the Muslims not in 1453 cut off the land routes to India and China. Are you still with me? And um, now as the Muslims are invading into the Byzantine Greek Empire, all the Greek scholars are fleeing and they're taking their art, architecture, and literature and they're fleeing to Florence, Italy. And we call this flood of Greek stuff into Florence in the late 1400s the renaissance and the greek scholars also flee with their greek new testaments here's jean jacques rousseau he's the father of the french revolution he says european europe had fallen into barbarity a revolution was necessary it came from where one would least expect he says it was from the stupid muslim that's his word and the eternal blight on learning who brought about its rebirth among us the collapse of the throne of constantine carried into italy the debris of ancient greece so once the Byzantine Empire collapsed and all these Greek scholars are fleeing to Italy with their Greek art, architecture, and literature, but they also flee with their Greek New Testaments. And so now the Europeans are translating the Bible, not just to Latin, but all the way back to Greek. It lays the foundation for something we call the Reformation. And uh, so Martin Luther starts the Reformation in 1517. In 1529, 100,000 Muslims surround Vienna, Austria under Suleiman the Magnificent. Martin Luther says, the Turk is the rod of the wrath of the Lord our God. And then he says, the fight against the Turks must begin with repentance. We must reform our lives or we shall fight in vain. Our sins and ingratitude have earned God's wrath, so he justly gives us into the hands of the devil and the Turk. And then some other quotes from uh, Christian leaders. And so Sultan Suleiman controls this whole, human, uh, whole huge area. His counterpart is the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor of Spain. He takes all the gold that came from the New World to fight the Muslims from taking over Europe. And uh, anyway, uh, so Dragut Reis is the Muslim pirate. He dominates the Mediterranean, and he's attacking Italy and Spain and France. And the best the Italians can do is Andrea Doria. He at least puts up a fight. And there's a little island of Malta, and the Muslims want to conquer this island because then they can conquer Sicily and all of Italy. There's 40,000 Muslims surround this little island. There's only 1,000 defenders, the Knights of Malta. And the 70-year-old head of the Knights of Malta, name is Jean Lavalette, gets these young knights together. and He says, you vowed to give your life for Christ when you joined this order. Guess what? You're going to have to give it now because we're not going to get any reinforcements. This is a fight between the Koran and the Gospels. And so he tells these the Muslims pound away with their cannons and reduce their castles to rubble. And then they attack, and these guys climb out of the rubble, and they fight off the Muslims. And then they found, do it again and again. They keep blasting with their cannons, and these guys will climb out and fight them back. Finally, they blast through the last wall, and uh, everybody runs to the back. And this old Jean Lavalette, this 70-year-old knight, stands in the gap with his sword. And the Muslims see the dust settle, and they see this one old guy standing there, and they sort of hesitate. And all the rest of them say, well, he's going to die. We're all going to die. We may as well die with him. And so they charge out, but they don't stop at the wall. They go out, and the Muslims didn't expect. They have to retreat, and they're tripping over themselves. They get routed. Finally, some reinforcements came, and the Muslims have to sail away on September 11th, 1565. And then there's the Battle of Lepanto, 230 Muslim ships uh, powered by 15,000 Christian slaves under the deck rowing. And then there's the Holy League, led by the king's son. So you've got King Charles V of Spain. This is his 24-year-old son, Don John of Austria. 24-year-old guy is leading the Holy League. And the wind is against him. And his admirals say, you know, we can call this off and do it another time. 
And this young guy gets everybody on deck and has them pray. And while they're praying, the wind changes 180 degrees. And the Muslim sails go limp. See how dark it is? The sails are all limp. And the Holy League ships, their sails all fill full of wind. And they win the Battle of Lepanto. 200 of the 230 Muslim ships were captured or sank. This broke the back of the Muslim dominance of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, finally, in 1683, the same year William Penn is founding Pennsylvania, 200,000 Muslims surround Vienna. And they're driven back on September 11th, 1683, by the Polish king Jan Sobieski. And he has the largest cavalry charge in history up to this date. Uh, he had uh, about 80,000 of these big Polish hussar horses, and they're charging. The soldiers have made wings for their back. And it's made this flapping, whistling noise as they charged. And um, so, uh, and then it's a little trivia, the Muslims left their camps and fled. And when Jan Sobieski goes into the tents, he finds these bags of beans, and uh, they were coffee beans. This was this new Muslim drink that allowed them to fight day and night. But they weren't sure if they should drink coffee because it was the Muslims' drink. So they took a cup of it to Pope Clement. He tasted it, said, this is too good to leave for the Muslims. Let's baptize it. And then coffee spread across Europe. And the word coffee comes from the Arabic word kafir, which means infidel, because the beans came from Ethiopia, which was one of the few African countries that was able to stay Christian. So the Muslims called the Christians in Ethiopia kafirs or infidels. And so this was the kafir bean, or as we say today, the coffee bean. So had you had your cup of infidel today? But it's okay to drink. Pope Clement said so. So, uh, another interesting story. The Muslims were tunneling under the walls of Vienna. And the baker was up early and he heard the little tapping noise. He tells the soldiers they put out buckets of water and they see the little ripples. They find out where the tunnel is. They intercept the tunnel. And they go into the tunnel and they find it's filled full of gunpowder. The Muslims were going to blow it up and have the wall collapse and then charge in. And they were able to defuse it at the last minute. So the, they never exploded. Afterwards, they were going to reward the baker. And he says, I don't need a reward. Just give me the sole permission to cook a pastry in the shape of the Muslim crescent. And it was called the croissant, the crescent roll. So the next time you have coffee and croissants, you can celebrate the victory of the Battle of Vienna, September 11th, 1683. Uh, anyway, it's Captain John Smith spent five years fighting the Muslims in Hungary before he founded Virginia. One of the pilgrim ships was captured by the Muslims. Uh, Napoleon invades Egypt, and he's going to introduce equality and democracy. There's no words in their Arabic language for equality. And um, he finally has to leave. And then the Muslims would capture these Europeans and make them pay tribute, Sweden, Spain, England, France. And we call this the Barbary Pirate Wars. And so when, when we get independent of England, these Muslims say, well, you're your own country? Yeah, we're independent of England. Uh, that means you need to pay up. So the day after Thomas Jefferson's inauguration as the third president, he gets a demand from the Pasha of Tripoli for a quarter million dollars extortion payment. Otherwise, they'd declare war. And Jefferson said, I did the only reasonable thing. I sent a squadron to the Mediterranean <laughs> to defend our commerce. Anyway, um, but um, so uh, let's see here. So finally, uh, we are getting up to the third spring. So the Ottoman Empire, it begins to get old, and finally um, uh, Bulgaria, Albania break away. Wallachia, Moldova, Transylvania, all these countries are breaking away from this old, crumbling Ottoman Empire. A little country named Armenia wants to break away too, and the Muslim Ottoman, Abdul Hamid, said no, and he kills 100,000 Armenian Christians in 1896. And Grover Cleveland is talking about this bloody butchery takes place. Suddenly they whip into this blind fury without notice. And, uh, and so finally, uh, they get a new leader um, 
they, they chase out Abdul Hamid, the Ottoman Sultan, and there's this brief euphoria in Turkey that they got rid of like the Shah or, you know, Mubarak or like Saddam. And they get, we're going we're gonna to join Europe. We're going to have a constitution. But they get three Turkish generals that end up taking over. They're called the Young Turks. And they decide they want to restore the Turkish Ottoman Empire to its former glory. But to do that, they want to have one language, one culture, and one religion. They call it Ottomanization. And so they kill millions of Armenian Christians, Syrian Christians, Kurds, they just, their goal is to just kill them all because they want to have it just be the Turks. And they march them into the desert, march them off of cliffs, just heartbreaking stories. I've talked to many people of Armenian background and they'll tell me, yeah, my aunt, you know, or my uncle, I was at a Baptist church in Oklahoma once, and this guy's grandmother had been smuggled out of Armenia by the dad putting her in an empty pickle barrel wheeling her down to the dock and bribing some Muslim to take her on the boat without asking questions. Uh, you know, I mean, all these different stories. She finally got to America. And um, now, after all that killing in Turkey, uh, the uh, World War I happened, and um, the Ottoman Empire was gone. The Ottoman Empire was divvied up amongst the different countries. So France takes a part of the old Ottoman Empire, Syria, and Lebanon. And Britain takes a part of the old Ottoman Empire, uh, Iraq and Egypt and Palestine. Gives birth to Israel out of that, remember, 1948. And so, um, so the Ottoman Empire was gone. They wanted America to take a part of the old Ottoman Empire. Armenia, we said no, because we were isolationists after World War I. But the Ottoman Empire, for all practical purposes, was gone. The Muslim world viewed itself as having been defeated. Very similar to, you know, in Japan after the atomic bomb was dropped, the Japanese people said, well, our religion has, uh, has let us down. And General MacArthur was saying, send missionaries over. Well, that's sort of what happened. The Ottoman Empire had viewed that their religion had let them down, and they became more uh, nonviolent. And so they wanted to be like the West. And so they said, well, Britain ruled the world for two centuries. America won World War I, World War II. And so the way to the future is to be like the West. And so they would dress in business suits, like the Shah of Iran. I met his son. He loved America and had teach English in his country, send his kids to Western schools, and, you know, got rid of the Fezzes and the Burkas. They were all moving in this uh, Western direction. I went to college with a guy, and he was from Iran. He had an American flag on his dorm room wall. You know, he had a picture of President Nixon at the time. I I didn't even have a picture of President Nixon (laughs) on my dorm room wall. I mean, these Iranians were very pro-American. And so the whole Muslim world was moving in this direction until the Muslim Brotherhood was started in 1928. And the Muslim Brotherhood said, stop being friends with the infidel West. We've got to get back to conquering the world for Allah. And they began to target all of these secular kings. Now, what happened in Turkey? After the killing of these millions of people, they got a leader named Ataturk. That's him right there. And he decided to remake the image of Turkey and distance himself, like these other kings were, distance himself from the bloody past. And he put the military in charge of making sure the politics never got fundamental Muslim again. And he outlawed the burqa and outlawed the fez and outlawed the Arabic language and outlawed Arabic names. And he wanted to make it a secular state. And it worked. And Turkey was a secular state for several generations until 
this guy got elected, the current leader named Erdogan. He pretended to be a secular leader until he gets in, and then he turns fundamental Muslim. He arrests all the military leaders that were supposed to keep him in check. And now he's turning Turkey back into this Muslim political system that wants to reestablish the caliphate, wants to reestablish the Muslim state. So what is the Muslim Brotherhood goal? They want to reestablish the Ottoman Empire. Everything that once was part of it, they want it back. And so this is what we call the Arab Spring started in 1928. Again, most Muslims are not political and militant. They just want to live their lives. But the, there are some that want there to be this political takeover. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, he traveled America in our early history, but he also uh, studied Islam. And he says, Muhammad put into the Quran not religious doctrines only, but political maxims, criminal and civil laws. The Muslim Brotherhood said, Allah is our objective, the Quran is our constitution, the Prophet is our leader, jihad is the way, death for the sake of Allah is our highest aspirations. And so the Muslim Brotherhood says, you know, kill the disbeliever wherever we find them. These are all verses from the Quran. And they base their strategy on the two cities Muhammad lived in. Remember at the very beginning I talked about Mecca and Medina? And so the Muslim Brotherhood says, okay, most Muslims are nonviolent. What they teach themselves to do is pretend like they are just a religious Muslim to gain access into the host country. And nobody suspects them because they're just taking advantage of the freedom of religion. And they're just like Muhammad was in the first stage of his life when he was just a religious leader. But then when the signal is given, boom, they become political militant and they overthrow the governments. And so that's what happened in all these countries. Egypt, for example, uh, we had um, uh, Nasser uh, was their leader. And we actually uh, had him be friends with Israel. And he did a treaty. Or Sadat. Sadat was his name. And, um, and so Sadat did a treaty with Israel. And, uh, but then the Muslim Brotherhood infiltrated the Egyptian military. And they're having a parade. And they're marching by the bandstands. And there's President uh, Sadat. The Muslim Brotherhood turn and spray the bandstand with machine gun bullets. And kill their president. And so Mubarak becomes the next leader, and he's trying to crack down on the Muslim Brotherhood, and we're supporting him. And, um, and so uh, then uh, the leader of um, Jerusalem is um, this guy named the Mufti, the Mufti of Jerusalem. Did you know Hitler was going to send the Jews to Palestine to get rid of him? And the Mufti of Jerusalem says, we don't want him, kill him. And so he raised an entire Bosnian Muslim panzer division to fight alongside of Hitler. Uh, they still aren't that... Uh, strong until they get a shot in the arm in 1938 with Standard Oil Company, uh, Standard Oil developing, uh, Standard Oil discovering oil in Saudi Arabia, and now they're funding it. 1955, in Constantinople, they changed the name to Istanbul. That's when uh, uh, they block off the Christian neighborhoods and kill about another 80,000. 1971, the Muslims killed 2 million Hindus, and Kissinger and Nixon don't do anything. 1983, I love Reagan, but when they blew up our U.S. Marine barracks, killed 241 U.S. Marines, Reagan's response was just to withdraw. And so what's Sharia law? Uh, Sharia law is trying to be like Muhammad. Like we want to be like Jesus, they want to be like Muhammad. I point out, though, we don't believe we go to heaven by being like Jesus. We go to heaven because Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. We want to be like Jesus to show the rest of the world how much God loves him. But we don't think we're increasing our chances of going to heaven by trying to wear the same clothes he wore, the same sandals. Muslims think that they increase their chances of going to paradise by trying to live exactly like Muhammad did. And um, what Muhammad permitted is permitted, called halal. What Muhammad did not permit is not permitted, is called haram. 
So Muhammad liked cats. Cats are halal. They are permitted. Muhammad did not like dogs. They're haram. They're not permitted. And so the, the Sharia law comes from the Quran, the Hadith. There are 60,000 of those. They're stories. Uh, the Surat, the biography, and then the rulings. And it determines what to eat, what to dress, how many wives you can have, how to beat your wife. Now, if we take the religious side of Islam and set it aside, we're just going to look at political militant Islam. Uh, here we have our President Bush was the first president to speak in a mosque. And uh, first president to celebrate Ramadan in the White House. And uh, Laura Bush puts on the Muslim veil. And Nancy Pelosi puts on the Muslim veil. And Hillary Clinton puts on the Muslim veil. And um, then they have prayer meetings on the U.S. Capitol lawn. If you were a Muslim and you were a moderate Muslim and you saw this happening, what would you think? Sort of be like us if Billy Graham had a crusade in downtown Mecca. You know, what would we think? Hey, we're making headway there. And so... uh, we see uh, here's a high school in Colorado where they're saying Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under Allah. And now we have public schools where they're making the kids practice saying Muslim prayers. And wealthy Muslims have bought ownership in the textbook companies that are writing the textbooks for our public schools. And we're issuing Islamic postage stamps. And um, I, I threw this picture in there. You've got to look at it for a second. Smile. Anyway, uh, and then Muslims swearing into Congress on a Quran. Now, why is the problem? The Quran says it's superior to man-made law because it came from Allah to Muhammad. And the Quran says it's okay to lie to make it superior. And um, then uh, this is an interesting guy, Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, one of the richest men in the world. And he donates money to families of suicide bombers, supports care, but he bought an interest in News Corp and Citibank, AOL, Disney. And, and News Corp owns Fox News. And so his idea is you do jihad through money. So if you're a wealthy Muslim, you buy a visible ownership in a company. Everybody wants to please the owner of the company, so they voluntarily submit to Islamic practices. And, um, and then again, if you were a moderate Muslim, what would you think if these different things happened that never, ever happened before? And, um, and so these are Muslims that are involved with our government. Uh, Arif Alakam was the deputy mayor of Los Angeles. He stopped Los Angeles from tracking terrorists, did such a good job. He's now a key member of Homeland Security. And Kareem Shore is a devout Muslim from Damascus. He's a member of Homeland Security. And Rashad Hussein is um, a deputy, a White House consul, and he says the president is educator-in-chief to America on Islam. And Dalia Maghi has the first veiled Muslim woman advisor to the president. She says Sharia law is gender justice. Here's the head of Homeland Security. He said his job is to give voice to the plight of Muslims. And uh, here's the president's senior advisor, Valerie Jarrett, was born in Iran. And, um, and so we see that uh, uh, Hillary Clinton's right-hand person, Huma Abedin, uh, is, has connections with the Muslim Brotherhood. And with her help, Hillary rebuilt mosques in 27 countries. And uh, so the richest men in the Muslim world started a U.N. with inside the U.N., Right? So the U.N. has the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. You can join a religion, you can leave a religion. They started the Cairo Declaration of Human Rights that has Sharia law, where if you leave Islam, you get killed. And so they met with uh, our Secretary of State, who promised to help them and um, to make it so that nobody can insult Islam. Now, when, that's sort of code, too, because the gospel insults Islam. If you, were to go to, if you were to go to Saudi Arabia and say Jesus is the only way to heaven, that would be insulting to Islam and they would kill you. So in other words, when they say they don't want people to insult Islam, everything that's not Islam insults Islam. And so they're wanting to have global Sharia law. And uh, shortly after that is when the troops were pulled out of Benghazi and the, guy, the ambassador was killed and when it was, and it was trying to be blamed on this video insulting Islam. And when it came out, it had nothing to do with the video. It was like, oh, well, that was a long time ago. And now we see that 
Benghazi was a gun running operation. And so the idea is that um, the Muslim Brotherhood wants to pull the rug out from all these presidents and kings in the Middle East. And so they can reestablish this Ottoman Empire, this ISIS. And so they get rid of the Shah, they get rid of Mubarak, they get rid of Gaddafi. It's still hard for me to understand how we took out Gaddafi. Gaddafi was the head of a country, and we were not at war with the country. He had not declared war with us. Just our president decides he's going to knock off the leader of a, of a nation? Why? So the Muslim Brotherhood can take over, and then they're moving the guns from Benghazi to Syria so that they can take out Assad. Why? Because they want to get rid of all these kings so they can set up the Muslim Brotherhood, their, their caliphate. And when Russia comes to Assad's rescue, these, these Muslim Brotherhood-type people, trained by America, armed by America, go in and call themselves ISIS and kill the Christians. And so uh, here's uh, Fox News. It says, docs show weapons going from Benghazi to Syria. And um, then um, declassified docs, Obama ordered the CIA to train ISIS. That was Judicial Watch found that out. Uh, another declassified docs, Hillary aided the rise of ISIS. We're still selling $11 billion of weapons to these Gulf states that support Hamas. And, um, and so this is what our young men and women fought for to free from Saddam Hussein, and now ISIS has taken it over. And uh, they want all of that as their caliphate. And this little red spot is Israel. Does anybody honestly think that if we abandon Israel that suddenly the whole Muslim world would get nice? Um, and so now we see larger populations of Muslims moving into South America. Here's Trinidad, 12% Muslim. Guyana, 15%. Suriname is now 25% Muslim. Hugo Chavez had been bringing Muslim terrorists over from Iran to uh, Venezuela, teaching them Spanish and sending them north so they've infiltrated the drug gangs. And they're coming across our, our southern border and uh, being spread out into cities all across America. And then we have the uh, uh, news reports. ISIS-Mexican drug cartels talking to each other. Former Homeland Security Advisor, very true. ISIS may have crossed the border. ISIS training camps on the border. And um, Alan West here from Florida says, Nightmare on the border. ISIS-Mexican cartels are teaming up. And um, anyway, I just thought I'd come and give you a little word of encouragement this morning. You know. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, we see that uh, I-, I lived a half an hour from Ferguson. And somebody held up an ISIS sign in Ferguson. And so the thought is, all these Muslim immigrants that are being brought into America spread into cities, no background checks being done on them, are we being set up for an Arab Spring? Simultaneous Baltimore's, Ferguson, San Bernardino's, all across America building up to a head before the next election. And then the cry will go out, the president needs to declare this a national emergency. And they'll say, oh, national emergency, we need to go house to house and collect everybody's guns. And when the dust settles, we've just changed our form of government from the people ruling back to one person in charge. And um, anyway, so um, see a trend? Europe went from a Judeo-Christian past into a secular free sex neutral, and now Europe's going into an Islamic future. And so the whole gay agenda is simply a, a transition phase from the Christian past to an Islamic future. And a whole lot of the old guys in the military are transitioning out or taking early retirement, and now we're seeing more of um, uh, the, the uh, agenda taking place there. So um, let me get to one part of this. So uh, the brilliant strategy, so you take advantage of the diversity, multicultural freedom of religion to immigrate in, and then you take over politically. So re- immigrate as a religious person, increase and get involved in politics, and then eliminate. And there's the religion of Islam, but then there's the political Islam. Now, uh, there's, we've got to get ready to close here. So let me um, get to one thought. And uh, let me see. Okay, here. What political military systems has the world faced in the last 70 years that had a world conquest aspect to it, and wherever they took over, non-adherents were not equal? All right, so... 
Maybe the Nazis. I'm half German. But in the 1930s, America said, look, we love the German, but we have to stand against this political military system called Nazism. Why? They have a global conquest aspect, and wherever they take over, non-Nazis like Jews are not equal. And we love the Italians, but we had to stand against Mussolini's fascism. And we love the Japanese, but we had to stand against Emperor Hirohito's imperialism. And we love the Russian, but we had to stand against Soviet communism. And we love the Chinese, but we had to stand against Mao's collectivism. Well, today we love the Arab, the Indonesian, the Turk, the Pakistani, but we have to stand against political military Islam. Why? It has a global conquest aspect to it. Wherever it takes over, non-adherents are not equal. I'm going to end with this one thought. Um, uh, The church was born into a one-world anti-Christian government, the Roman Empire. Evidently, God is not afraid of one-world anti-Christian governments because he had the church born into one. Do you know Christianity is still the fastest-growing religion in the world, with 80,000 added every day, mostly in Africa, the Middle East, India, and Asia? Did you know Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world, with over 500 people being martyred every day, mostly in Africa, the Middle East, India, and Asia? And so where the persecution is the greatest is where the revival is the greatest. We're praying for revival. It may come on the heels of a persecution. How many of you tend to pray more when things are going good in your life or when things are going bad in your life human nature is that when there's a crisis we turn to christ and if god is blessing us as a country and we're turning away from him the only other alternative is that he withholds the blessings and there's a crisis and we turn to him right so it's like the student away at college and he's the dad's paying the credit card bill and the dad you know gives the son Son calls and says, thank you, Dad, thank you, Dad, thank you, Dad. You don't mind paying it. But then you don't hear from him for a while. And then you see this credit card statement. You're paying for booze and cigarettes and pornography. I'm not going to pay this card anymore. And the, the kids call and say, hey, the card's not working. You better believe it's not working. I'm not going to pay for that. God has been paying our national credit card bill. And we've been calling and thanking him. We got him on his coins to send the Pledge of Allegiance. God, God, we got days of Thanksgiving. But now, no matter how much he blesses us, we're turning away from him. If you were God, what would you do? All right? I mean, after 9-11, we went to church for two weeks, and we went back to shopping. I mean, it's like, so here we say, God hates the shedding of innocent blood. And, and so, now, I have a friend named Zudi Josser. He is a Muslim who is a nonviolent Muslim, and he reminds me when I see him that not all Muslims are violent. And he says that 26 million Egyptians gathered together in Tahir Square, and they threw out the Muslim Brotherhood. And this was considered the largest demonstration in world history. 26 million of them says, we don't want the Muslim Brotherhood, and they threw him out. This is an interesting guy. This is an Egyptian minister named Father Zachariah Boutros. He broadcasts in Arabic via satellite into Egypt, and over 6 million Muslims convert to Christianity every year. He is so effective. They have a six... They have a $60 million fatwa on him to kill him, but they can't find him because he's broadcasting via satellite. And so we see where Islam is violent, where it's expanding, but on the inside, it's falling apart. Very similar to if you drop a match on a newspaper and it burns outward, like the old Bonanza TV shows, you know, and it burns out. It's violent around where the flame is, but on the inside, it's ashes, and that's sort of the way Islam is. Another ministry, uh, ChristForAllPeoples.org. You can get these DVDs. It's the movie, The Life of Jesus, that Campus Crusade translated into lots of languages. But this this DVD has it in the major Muslim languages. There's nothing about Islam on it. It's just the life of Jesus, and you pass them out. Carry it in your purse. You contact them. You can have, have box them at the back of the church. And most Muslims don't know the story. And when they see Jesus forgiving the adulterous woman and they're taught to stone her, they're, they're like, I want to know more about Jesus. I actually met a woman 
who had been Egyptian Muslim, wore all the veils, and she was praying. She said, I want to get closer to Allah. I want to get closer to God. And she said she had a dream of a stained glass window with lots of gold rings on it. And she said Jesus came over, took one of the rings off the window. It turned into a ring, and he put it on her finger. This is in her dream. And she woke up, and she says, I felt the ring on my finger. And all day long, I walked around not wanting it to fall. I said, what happened? She goes, well, I didn't know what it meant. I just knew I wanted to know more about Jesus. And she kept seeking and seeking until finally she became a Christian. She escaped and she came to live in Maryland. And, and so God is giving dreams and visions to a whole lot of Muslims, and they're converting. So we, and this is the living oasis. This is the story of that Egyptian, uh, I'm sorry, Iraqi Chaldean Christian that came to America, and then he got saved. And that's my website. And so um, the most important thing is to bring people to Christ. The second most important thing is to preserve the freedom to do the most important thing. If we're really convinced that Jesus is the answer, we're going to preserve the freedom to tell people about Jesus. And then a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And um, I want to leave with this one thought. Someday you're going to be dead. It's a nice thought to end a sunny service on. But you're going to be in heaven because you believe Jesus paid for your sins. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining is the sun, with no less days to sing his praise than when we just begun. Imagine you've been in heaven 10,000 years. And you're walking the streets of gold. And maybe you'll meet Beulah Land. And you'll meet, the, you'll meet Moses. That'd be pretty neat. Maybe Moses will invite you over to his place. I don't know what it's like in heaven. But um, it says that Jesus said, My father's house are many mansions. So Moses will probably have a pretty nice place. He'll probably have one of those big fireplaces where the logs don't burn out. Get it? The burning bush in the wilderness. Moses saw it didn't burn up in the burning logs in his fireplace. Anyway. And I heard one person say, In heaven you'll travel as fast as you think. And I'll probably show up late. My, my wife will say, where were you? I, say, I was thinking about something else. I don't know. But imagine being there in Moses' living room. Maybe like today. Maybe he's got a big living room. Maybe Moses is sitting right in front of you. And after the small talk's over, you reach over, tap him on the shoulder, and you say, Moses, tell us a story again. What was it like? I, I read the book and saw the movie. But here you are in person. And Moses will stand up and he'll say, well, I was 80 years old. And Pharaoh, the most powerful military leader in the world, was charging in at us with these razor-sharp swords and chariots. And we were totally unarmed. And I just held up my staff. I said, God, use me to deliver your people. And the waves came in and swallowed up Pharaoh's chariots. We're going to say, wow. Then we're going to look around the room and maybe a row in front of you is David. Tap him on the shoulder. David, tell us your story. And he'll stand up and he'll say, I was just a teenager. And this giant thug, Goliath, was mocking our God and making fun of our faith. And all these grown-ups were too chicken to do anything. And I said, well, enough of them. <clears throat> I'm going to take my little sling and I hit him in the head and took his own sword and chopped his head off. We're going to say, wow. Then we're going to see Gideon. Say, Gideon, tell us your story. And he's going to say, okay, 100,000 Midianites. I was able to get 30,000 Israelites. And God said, tell everyone that's scared to go home great. Now I'm down to 10,000. He says, still too many. Go drink from a creek. And he whittles it down to 300. And then he says, with 300, I defeated 100,000. We're going to say, wow. And then we're going to hear Deborah and the Apostle Paul and all the great saints of old. Then everybody's going to look at you. Say, you, we haven't heard your story yet. What did you do when it was your turn to be on earth? What were they saying about God in your country? Or they're saying about the baby that the Lord knew in the mother's womb, or marriage that God himself instituted in Genesis, that the man shall leave the father, mother, and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. What did you do when the whole world was against you? What did you do when you were backstabbed by all your Christian friends, and you were about ready to give up on everything, and you just kept your eyes on Jesus, and you just trusted him, and it was just like a little thread that you could barely hold on to, but you held on to it. And then it turned into a, a string, and a rope, and a cord, and a cable, and finally the presence of God came back and down, and the blessings of God into your life. What did you do? You know, I hate for any of us to be up there and Jesus to walk in the room and to have a big screen come down and him show all kinds of great things happening. And he says, you know, this is what you could have done 
if you'd have been just a little more sold out to me and realized you can't go back down to earth and do anything for him because you're already in heaven because you believe that Jesus died for your sins. But guess what? We're still on this earth. We still have breath in our lungs. We still have feet that trod the soil. You still can do those things that you will be known for forever. And if there's one thing that we can see in the Bible that God loves to wait until things look hopeless, and then he raises up little nobodies that are small in their own eyes, but big in faith and courage, and God loves to use them to do great works. And so God chose, out of the thousands of years of world history, he chose for you to be alive right now. It's like a coach with a basketball team. And he's got, the, got players on the bench. And he says, okay, it's your turn to get in the game. And he's, he's like, but, but coach, don't you see how they're, they're playing sort of tough? They're like bumping into each other. because, yeah, yeah, I know. Now get in the game. But, but coach, they, they look, they knocked the one guy down. This, this is really scary, coach. The guy, he says, look, I made you. I drafted you. I trained you. You're six foot six. They're four feet tall. Now get in the game. God says, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. This is your time. He chose for you to be alive right now. He knows everything that's going on out there. And he says, you've got what it takes. You've got the Holy Spirit. You've got the Word of God. You've got the the best pastor in the whole country right here. God is going to use you to do great things. Thank you so much. God bless you.